This audio recording is presented by City Church Orlando. Our sermon text this morning is James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and the one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for their body, what good is that? So also by faith itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But some will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe in God, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from work is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see, the person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by her works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is God's word. Please be seated. Thanks, Rue. Again, my name is Ted Sin. Good morning. We're going through the book of James uh, together. We're going thread by thread, theme by theme. Last week we were in chapter 1. We've skipped a lot to jump ahead to chapter uh, 2. And we're in what we're calling the pure religion thread. James, uh, one of the threads that he weaves through this book is, is teaching on the authentic and genuine and real and biblical faith in Christianity. And what James is teaching us just at the very beginning, I want to say it clearly, he's teaching us that there are internal and external realities to a genuine religion, to to a genuine Christianity. There are internal realities and there are external realities. They they always go together. They can never be divorced. They can never be reversed. They always go together. They can never be divorced. And they can never be reversed. Or thinking about what we saw last week, James taught us that, that hearing without doing proves that we never really heard in the first place. And what he's going to teach us this week is that faith without works proves that you never really had genuine saving faith. By a long shot, the most controversial and most hotly debated text in James, probably the most controversial and the most debated text in the New Testament, and maybe the most controversial and hotly debated text in the Bible. We're going to take two weeks to unpack it, but there's no way to cut it up. You have to listen to all 13 verses. You have to look at it as a whole, and then you kind of have to dive into it, and and we'll do that uh, the next two weeks uh, that I preach. First of all, there's a presumed controversy between James and Paul. Historically, and even some commentators today will say that James and Paul were actually at odds in their letters, and they should have just gotten together and worked it out. But, but the reality is, is when James wrote this letter, there's really no possible way that he and Paul were fighting. 
when you look at where Paul's at in his Christianity in the early 40s, and when you look at when he starts to write books a whole decade later, they're really not fighting one another. Okay, so it's not a controversy between Paul and James, and, and Paul knows how to pick a fight. He, he tells uh, the Galatians in chapter 2, Peter was dead wrong. He was walking out of a court of the gospel. I corrected him. And in that same book, he talks about James and doesn't bring up any trouble with James at all. And in fact, Acts 15 talks about Paul going and submitting to James at a council. And there's no record there of them fighting. There's no controversy between James and Paul when you look at all that James said and when you look at all that Paul said. Now, there's been a massive controversy uh, through the history of the church um, as some are, quote, loyal to James and some follow Paul. And they're primarily in and around two verses. We're just going to look at them. I'm going to hit them head on. I'm going to talk about them again the next time I preach. But, but look at verse 14. It appears that James is questioning salvation by faith alone. One of the great mottos of the Reformation, one of the great uh, mottos of Paul's writings. And it feels controversial because Ephesians 2.8 seems to say the exact opposite of James 2.14. But James does not say, he doesn't ask this question, can genuine biblical faith save a man? That's not what he asks. Look at what he says. If someone says he has faith, but does not have works, can that faith save him? So James doesn't say, can biblical faith save a man? He says, can that faith, the faith that someone says they have, if works are not a part of their life. He's saying, can that faith that's never expressed in works, can that faith save a man? In the text in Ephesians 2 that usually is brought up as part of this great controversy says this. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift from God. This salvation is not a result of works. But then Paul goes on and says in verse 10, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So if James were to ask Paul, verse 14, Paul, if someone says they have faith and they don't have works, can that faith save him? Paul would say no, of course not. And so at first, verse 14, it feels controversial, but in the end... And you look plainly at what James says, it's not really all that controversial at all. Now, unfortunately, it's not the same for verse 24. I wish I could just sort of explain 24 away by some little word in the Greek, but I don't think I can do that quite so easily. Look at what James says in verse 24. You see that a person, and he's going to give Abraham and Rahab as two biblical illustrations of this. He says, a person is justified... <laughs> by works, and not by faith alone. So, so Paul says in Romans 3.28, for example, he, he says this in a lot of places. This is just one example. For we hold that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And James says in our text, a person's justified by works and not by faith alone. Okay, next week, I'm going to go through 21 through 24 very carefully and closely. And I'm actually going to summarize a lot of the story of Abraham from Genesis. And I'm going to prove to you there what I'm just going to simply say now. They use the word justified in two totally 
different ways. If you look at the word to justify in the Bible, it has at least two meanings. And you have to put your, your thinking cap on and you have to think about the context. And from the context, you can begin to understand what uh, James and or Paul means. To justify can mean, and this is how you normally hear it from the Apostle Paul, it can mean uh, to declare righteous, to make a statement about someone, that they are right with God, that they have moral beauty and perfection. This is usually the work of a judge. A judge normally, when, when it says in the Bible that, that, um, that, that we're justified in Paul, he's saying that, that the judge is declaring us righteous. But at the same time, the same exact word can mean to prove righteous. It, it, this is usually in uh, the Greek culture, it's when justify is used to talk about a lawyer. It's a lawyer's job to prove righteousness. It's a judge's job to declare righteousness. And so, like, this is an example from Scripture of justified being used in this way. Luke seven thirty-five. Wisdom is justified by all her children. And Jesus, in that teaching, is saying that a wise choice can only be proven and verified you can only know that it's wise after some water goes under the bridge and some time goes by, and then the, the fruit of that decision will look back at the decision and prove that the decision was wise. And so in the Bible, to justify can mean I declare you righteous, or it can mean I, I prove you righteous. And if you look through the Greek Old Testament, if you look through the teachings of Jesus, you're going to see this word, to justify, used both ways. And you have to put your thinking cap on considering all of Scripture, all of a book, all of a, all of a section of Scripture, and think, okay, which way is this author uh, uh, using the Word? Okay, I'll talk about it again next time I preach. So, I, I said this like three weeks ago. I said this about the so-called controversy between James and, and Paul, and I'll just say it again today. Uh, in reality, James and Paul are both looking at the saving work of God in our lives. They're both looking at the power of the gospel in our lives, but they're looking from different perspectives, and they have different emphases, okay? So Paul tends to teach like this. If you've been doing CBR, um, you're in Romans right now, you know that this is true. Paul tends to teach like this. He'll look at the whole work of God, and he'll say stuff like, isn't it great news that God is saving you from the power of sin? And James will look at the work of God, and he'll tend to teach like this. If you don't see sin decrease in your life, you're not saved. Paul will be like, praise God. He is making us less selfish over time. Hallelujah. And James will teach like this. If you're not less selfish this year than last year, you're not a Christian. They're both looking at the exact same truth, and they're just deciding to emphasize different ends of it. They both know and believe and teach the saving work of God. They know and they believe and they teach the power of the gospel. But they tend to look at the holistic work of God from different sides. Paul tends to look forward. God is doing this in your life. Trust Him. Repent. Believe. Praise Him. Hallelujah. And James tends to look backwards. He's just like asking the little nitpicky questions. Has God done this in your life? Be sober. Be realistic. Inspect your fruit. Time is of the essence. 
James has already taught us that God gives us new birth, that it has nothing to do with our choice. He says the foundational understanding for a Christian, chapter 2, verse 1, is that we have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He says in chapter 2, verse 5, that this faith is a gift from God. It's part of his blessed inheritance to us. But then he'll be totally fine in verses 12 through 14 or, or, or 22 or wherever we're at. He, he will, he'll be totally fine to just throw words all around and cause us uh, to soberly look at our lives and think about the truth that he's already given us. And so we find ourselves at the exact same place where we were last week. There are diagnostics that we can run on our lives to prove if we have saving faith or not. Uh, these are diagnostics that God, um, um, that, that God doesn't have to run these diagnostics for himself to see if we're saved. Uh, th- these are diagnostics that we can run to see if we have genuine, biblical, saving faith. Last week, we looked at three examples of doing the word that James gave us. I won't uh, reiterate those here, but today, James is actually uh, going to give us certain works is the word he used. It could be actions or deeds. And, and he says these works prove or justify uh, saving faith. Okay, so he actually gives, if you just look up at the text from 50,000 feet, and I would recommend uh, that you do that now, he, he actually asks the question in verse 14, what's genuine faith? And then he takes all, it's in your worship folder, by the way, if you want to look, he, he, he then takes the rest of those verses to define genuine biblical faith. He actually gives four illustrations in the text. And in between each illustration, he makes a statement about what genuine biblical faith is. Is So he says, what is saving faith? He gives four statements about what saving faith is, and he gives two stories that illustrate religiosity but don't exemplify pure religion. And then he gives two stories to exemplify pure religion or genuine gospel faith. Okay? The first story we're going to look at this morning, it's insufficient proof. If you're going to look at your life and inspect your life, if this is what you see, it's insufficient proof of genuine faith. The second and third stories we'll come back to next week. And then the last story, the story of Rahab, is an example of what our lives will look like when we relate to other people if we have genuine biblical faith. I hope this is not too confusing. This week we're going to focus on the uh, the manward proof of whether or not we have saving faith, the next time I preach, the Godward proof of genuine faith. All right, so let's pick up in verse 15. This is how genuine faith relates to other people. These two passages, okay? So James is telling us how genuine faith relates to other people, particularly people with physical needs. Pick up in verse 15. James gives us the context. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed, it's the word literally naked. If a brother or sister is naked and lacking in daily food, okay? So this is a person within the Christian community that you live life with, that you're in in close proximity to. If they're in dire straits, living the life of persistent poverty, okay? If they don't have sufficient clothes and they don't have food supply for today or tomorrow, So that's the context. Verse 16. One of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled. So so someone who says that they have faith, 
comes in contact with a fellow naked believer who never uh, uh, knows where their next meal is going to come from. And this person that comes in contact with this destitute uh, uh, neighbor, believer, friend in the community, they come in contact with them, and if they're full of words, that's a bad sign for James. An insufficient proof for genuine faith is politeness. So if we look at our lives and say, how do I interact with need if I'm polite? That's a bad start for James. It says, go in peace. It's just a common, polite, culturally appropriate blessing. It's sort of like us saying, have a good day. Good luck. Don't worry. Be happy. So if you think about how you interact with the needs around you that you know about in community, if the first thing is politeness, that's a bad sign. The second is, um, is bad if you're simply prayerful. Be warmed and be filled. So, some commentators think this, this is advice. It's like, go and warm yourself. Go and fill yourself. They kind of um, see these as, as commands. But, but I agree with the translation in our text that it's passive to the one hearing it, and, and, and it's a prayer. May you be warmed, and may you be filled. So, dead faith, if you look at verse 17, a faith that can't save a faith that doesn't justify, a non-biblical faith is willing to go and be in contact with physically destitute folks, the helpless and the hopeless in our community. And it's even willing to be nice and polite and hopeful for the naked and starving. And it's even willing to share some advice with them on how they can help themselves out of this terrible hole that they find themselves in. You can even teach them how to fish. And and this insufficient faith is even more than happy to tell God to do something about the problem in front of them. But insufficient faith is not willing to do this. Look at verse 16. Give them the things needed for the body. And James asks, like faith that is all talk and no works, what benefit is that? So also, first statement about what biblical, genuine faith is. Faith by itself, if it does not possess works, if it does not have works, it's a word for ownership. Faith by itself, if it does not possess works, is dead. Faith by itself is a willingness to talk. Works is a willingness to sacrificially give possessions to meet the need. Quick question. To what extent, I'm not even going to ask, are we, the hypothetical you, in the beginning in verse 15 or 16. I'm just going to say, to what extent are we, the hypothetical you, if one of you does this? Now, think about the flow of the passage, okay? Uh, It's an example of dead faith. It's an example uh, of if we have a religiosity, how we'll relate to people in need. But then at the bottom of the passage, the fourth illustration is an example of living faith, of, of what it looks like to relate to people in need if we have biblical faith. Rahab, verse 25, read with me. And in the same way, just like Abraham, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified Um, Not declared righteous, but proven righteous. Was not Rahab the prostitute proven righteous by her works when she received the messengers and sent them out 
by another way. So in one little verse here, James summarizes an entire chapter in the book of Joshua, the second chapter in the book of Joshua. And if you know your Old Testament at all, this is the book that tells the story of the people of Israel entering the promised land after God has delivered them from Egypt and after he has led them miraculously through the wilderness for 40 years. And in chapter 2, Joshua is now standing in Moses' place and he sends two spies into Jericho to scope out the land. And the spies in chapter 2, in order to fit in and in order to try to to, um, to keep their identity secret, they decided to lodge at a prostitute's house, which was a pretty normal, routine thing for travelers in this time to do, to stay in a brothel because of the excess number of beds. And, and Joshua is very clear that this is nothing sexual going on here, okay? So, so they're there because it's like a hotel. Uh, Rahab, upon meeting them, the prostitute Rahab, professes her faith in Yahweh, She tells the men, we're crumbling with fear in here. Our hearts are melting away. We've heard about what your God has done, what he did for you in the Exodus, what he did for you in the wilderness. I know that the powerful God you call Yahweh is God. I want to be identified with you. She takes them up to the roof and she hides them among various supplies. And while all this is happening, someone lets the king of Jericho know that there are spies at Rahab's house. And so the king sends Rahab news. You need to let them go. They're spies. You need to hand them over to us. And if you know anything about the story, you know that Rahab lies. She says, sure, they're here, but I didn't know they were spies. And they left the city before the gate was closed for the night. If you'll chase after them quickly, you can overtake them. And then after striking a deal about the future and the protection of her family, uh, we find out that Rahab lives in the actual city wall and she's able to let the men down uh, outside the city wall and tells them to go hide for three days. And then later you read in Joshua that, that Rahab and her family and anyone in that, that brothel was saved when the walls of Jericho came crumbling down. And this is James' point in referring to Rahab. A shifty, crafty, lying prostitute is given as a commendable example of living faith. Verse 26 For as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. A shifty, crafty, lying entrepreneur is given by James as a commendable example of biblical faith, justifying faith, faith that saves. Compare that to the polite and prayerful hypothetical you of verse 16. And here's the question, why? Because when she came in contact with folks from her community that were in danger and in need and helpless in and of themselves, she employed all of herself. She put all of her resources. She said, "Um, I'm all in. And she put her own life at risk in order to provide safety to her neighbor. This is the manward proof for genuine faith in James, sacrificial love for neighbor. The faith that saves is a faith that is productive in the lives of other people. Genuine faith in the gospel gets worked out this way. This way, I physically decrease for the physical increase of others. My resources are depleted so that others can be lifted up. And James is saying this is the proof. This is the evidence. This is the diagnostic to know if we have genuine 
faith. Being nice, being polite, be willing, being willing to visit orphans and widows is not the proof. Being willing to offer advice from the amazing pool of wisdom that God has given us through the years is not the proof. Being willing to mobilize an entire prayer chain is not the proof. The proof of whether living faith actually exists in me and you is this, giving them the things needed for the body. And now, of course, if you know your Bible, you know that this diagnostic, the diagnostic of providing the needs for the needy from your own resources, this is this diagnostic for pure religion, this is not utterly new and original to James. James's big brother, Jesus, clearly taught this diagnostic in the book of Matthew. Matthew 25, Jesus tells a parable of the final... Don't you wish James was more like Paul? I do. I'm glad he only wrote one book instead of the 12 or 13 Paul wrote. Because I need 13 books about grace. At any rate, James is about grace. I didn't mean that. Strike that from the record. Jesus says that in the final judgment, he will stand in front of us and he will parse us out and separate us. He will separate the sheep from the goats is the illustration given in the parable and he will put those who are truly saved and justified on one side and those who are not on the other. And whenever Jesus talks about the final judgment, people are always really confused that they're going in the other direction of what they thought. No one in any of the parables Jesus gives on the final judgment expected him to say that they're going to the final place of hell because their whole life they've been assuming that that's where they were going if they were wrong about Jesus. He always talks about people who think they're in. He doesn't say in Matthew 25 that we're going to get asked a question like, why should I let you in? He doesn't say you better know what the answer is. He says, I'll separate you. I'll put the sheep on my right and I'll put the goats on my left. And he tells us in advance what the diagnostic will be in the final judgment. The fork in the road between heaven and hell forever is this. Jesus will say to the sheep, enter eternal and entire bliss. Enter into holistic peace. Enter into utter flourishing. When I was hungry, you gave me food. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was a stranger, you welcomed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was sick, you visited me. When I was imprisoned, you came to me. And the sheep are going to say, what? When did we ever see you in that place? When did we see you hungry or thirsty or lonely or imprisoned? And Jesus will say this, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it to me. And he'll look at those on his left and he'll say, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And he goes through the whole list and says, I was hungry and you didn't give me food thirsty and you didn't give me water, etc., etc. And they'll say, when? They'll be shocked. What are you talking about? They'll say, when you didn't do it to one of the least of these, you didn't do it to me. Now listen, this is a diagnostic. This is not something you go out and do this week in order to be saved. This is a call to look at your life right now where you sit and run the diagnostic and ask yourself, 
Am I saved? Am I justified? Do I have in my possession genuine faith? Jesus does not teach that this is a test that you go out and do in order to get into the kingdom. He doesn't say that sheep earn heaven. He says in verse 34 of Matthew 25, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit. Who gets an inheritance? Do you earn it, or is it a birthright? It's a gift. Listen to what he says. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you ever since the foundation of the world. So before you were born, the Father prepared for you heaven. Take the test. Is the story of Rahab more characteristic of our interactions with the helpless and the hopeless, or is the hypothetical you of verse 16? What's the verdict? It's like a pregnancy test. There's either life in there or there's not life in there. What's the reading? What does the test say? Now, maybe, like me, your test results are a little too close to call, and you're a little uncomfortable with that reality. Listen, if you're saying the test clearly proves that I'm in, you've missed the point of James. You need to go listen to another sermon, or you need to be writing some book in the Bible. Maybe your test results, though, are clear and obvious, uh, obvious, and maybe we're polite and prayerful talkers, but not faithful doers. So to either group that truly exists, if it's too close to call, or if you're obviously dead when it comes to faith, James actually tells us in this text to where to go to right now to deal with that reality. So I'm going to walk you through a little rabbit trail, and I'm going to tell us, all of us, where to land this morning. Unless, of course, you obviously pass, and then you, you're, you can go to the bathroom now. Go back up. Actually, you know, I could pray, and like everybody close your eyes, and then you could leave, because you're probably humble, too. Um, <laughs> go back up to verse 18, all right? Go back up to verse 18. Look at where we are in the overall flow of the text. Okay, James has just given an illustration of insufficient proof of faith. It's a nice talker who doesn't do and they don't give. And he gives the first of four statements on defining genuine faith. He's like, faith that doesn't have works in its possession is dead faith. And then now, verse 18, but someone will say, okay, so James is going to use a very common literary technique here called the diatribe. And this is a very common technique in the culture in which James and Paul uh, live, and it's where you create an imaginary person to debate with so you can show both sides of the argument. So in verse 20, when he calls the man foolish, by the way, it's singular, 18 through 23. He's having this diatribe from 18 to 23. So when he calls someone foolish in verse 20, that's very common to the listener's ear. That That's not offensive. It's just part of how you make a point in his day and age. Tomorrow in Romans 9 and CBR, you're going to hear Paul say, who are you, O oh man? And he's done that like three times in Romans. He's, he's creating a dialogue. It's a way to, to, to really hit home with people, but to not be personally offensive to anyone. He doesn't say like Bob the carpenter or, or Lucy the entrepreneur uh, believes this and it's foolish. He makes up this imaginary person and he defeats the imaginary person so, to let the audience win, even if uh, he took them on head on, they might lose. And so at any rate, go back. He says, someone will say, you have faith 
and I have works. Okay? So the imaginary debater is saying this, that faith and works can be separated. And in fact, the debater says of himself, I have works while you have faith. So he's not debating James on the value of works. He says that's what he has. He's debating James on whether works and faith have to be connected. James doesn't call him a fool for saying, I'll focus on faith, you focus on works. He calls him a fool, catch this. He calls him a fool for saying, I'll focus on works, you focus on faith. That's huge. Pure religion has an internal reality and an external reality. They're always together. They can never be separated and they can never be reversed. So if the test results coming back from our works diagnostic, if the results are less than comforting, I know where we should not go. We should not go to the foolish place of focusing on works. That's what James says. You see that? The guy says, I've got works, you've got faith. And James says, you're a fool. The works I'm talking about flow from faith. Keep reading. Watch James. He's going to put the focus back on faith, which is where you and I need to be right now. Show me your faith without your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. Show is is just a word that means exposed to the eyes. James is saying that works are an expression of faith, or or works are a way of exposing faith uh, to the eyes. Regardless of where you are, the Bible says that our works or our actions or our deeds at the end of the day are expressions of what we ultimately believe in. So where do we go if we don't see the works we want to see in our diagnostics? We don't go to the focus of works. We go to the focus of biblical faith, which James defined in chapter 2, verse 1, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Where do we go? We run to Jesus. What's the gospel of Jesus proclaimed in Scripture? What has James taught us so far in his book? He says, We were spiritually dead, and God gave us new life. He says when we were utterly bankrupt spiritually, God blessed us with eternal riches. He said when we were helpless and hopeless, and when we had no resources of our own to deal with our situation, God came in and did everything at great personal expense to himself. He didn't just risk his life like Rahab. He gave his life in Jesus Do you see what God does for us in our sorry state of spiritual death, spiritual debt, spiritual bankruptcy? Does he come in and say, you should really do something about that spiritual destitution you're experiencing down there. You should consider saving yourself. You should consider enriching yourself. You can do it. In fact, I'm going to be praying for you. No. He puts on skin. He ruptures the eternal divine community. He breaks up the Trinity so that Jesus could live for us and die for us and give us the community that he's had forever. He who was rich 
became poor so that we might become rich. He who was perfectly healthy and vibrant and glorious, he became sick and he died for us so that we could come to life. And this is what James is saying in this text. Do you believe that or not? And don't use words like yes or no. Show me you believe with your life. And James is saying, do you value Jesus or not? And don't give me four theological premises about him. We show that we value the way Jesus treated us in the gospel. We show it by how we treat others. And James is saying, is the gospel precious to you? He says, don't give me some catechism in response. We show that Jesus is precious by giving up what the world calls precious so that others can live. And James is saying, if all you have is doctrine about Jesus, you have faith that doesn't work. He is saying, it's not enough to possess good doctrine. Good doctrine has to possess you. We'll look at this more next week, talking about Abraham's relationship with the Father compared to the demons. But uh, we're going to sing now. And, And Aaron beautifully, brilliantly picked the right song. The song is not a song of commitment. It's not a song promising to do works. It is not anything other than this. Lead me to the cross. And James is telling us right now, don't focus on works. Focus on the cross. Beg for mercy. Receive mercy. And over time, that mercy will be given to others in the name of Jesus. Let's pray. Most gracious God and Heavenly Father, please have mercy on me, a sinner. I uh, beg for your, your mercy and your forgiveness and your change. I look at my life and I see a lot of talk. I see a lot of theology. I don't see nearly as much doing and working as I'd like to see. I do thank you for the truth of your word that you are changing us, that you are saving us that you are transforming us i do pray again this week as i have been praying all week that if there are some here who have had uh, less than biblical faith you would reveal that to them now and they would cling to you jesus and find mercy in you i also have been praying that if there are true and genuine believers who feel beat down by james that you would lift them up and that you would convince them of your love for them and your love might flow through them to others would you be with us now as we ask you to take us to the cross, would you take us to Jesus and from that faith bring about works. In your name we pray, amen.